We've been in a study in the Gospel of Luke. You will want a Bible open. Grab your Bible, open to Luke 13. If you don't have a Bible or you don't own a Bible, raise your hand and an usher is coming to hand you a Bible so you have your own there. This morning, I've got a message for you about the most relationally gifted person who has ever lived. And no, I'm not talking about Pastor Eric Johnson. He's amazing. He's a close second, okay? I'm talking, of course, about Jesus, right? In the church, the answer to every question is Jesus, okay? Although a woman came up after the nine and she said, that's true. But then I heard a story of a Sunday school teacher who said, okay, kids, what's brown and furry and scurries around collecting acorns? And the kids were really nervous. And a kid slipped up his hand and said, I think the answer is probably Jesus, but it also sounds like a squirrel. (laughs) But this is Jesus, okay? The most relationally gifted person who's ever lived. And what I want to talk about today is what you and I can learn from Jesus about relationships. About how to cultivate them. It's probably one of the most unexpected benefits from studying a gospel account, like what we're doing, studying a book like Luke. So you can study a book like Luke and you can learn truth about the gospel, which we have been. Truth about God, truth about the kingdom. What are the attributes of the kingdom? Amazing. You can also study a gospel account and learn the history. What did Jesus do? When did he do it? This is a narrative, accurate historical account of the life of Jesus Christ. And we're learning all that. But did you know, unexpected, you can also study a gospel account looking for the way that Jesus cultivated relationships. And we can learn from him. And we're supposed to learn from him as people who are called to be imitators of Christ. How did Jesus treat people? What did he talk about? Was he a good listener? When did he speak and when did he listen? What kind of emotion did he bring to his interactions with people? Especially people who were outside of the, of the body of believers. Amazing. Jesus Christ was the master of relationships, friends. Amen? He was a master. He was the gold standard of interpersonal skills. His EQ was off the charts, (laughs) right? Heard of that? Emotional intelligence. It's all a fad right now in pop psychology. Business. A couple years ago, I got an email from someone with an article attached from the Harvard Business Review. And the title of the article was, How to Improve Your Emotional Intelligence in the Workplace. And all it said in the email was, I read this article and thought of you. And I thought, "Mm, how am I supposed to take that, you know? It's like, how not to be a jerk? I read this and I thought of you. But anyway, so, but EQ, emotional, before emotional intelligence was even a thing we had a name for, Jesus was the gold standard. And friends, here's the thing. We're called to be imitators of Christ. And did you know, you could go back and read now, go back and read Luke and start looking. Wait a minute. I want to watch the master at work. I want to learn from him because I care about my relationships. 
And today what we're going to notice in our text, we look at Luke 13, verses 22 to 35 is our text. Here's what you'll see. In your own Bible, you'll see two paragraphs. That's because this text is broken into two units. Each unit is a window into an interaction that Jesus had with someone. And in both interactions, we're going to get a window into the emotional Christ, the relational Christ, the Christ who the Christ who listened to people, the Christ who cultivated relationships, and we're going to learn from him. So we look at it with me now, Luke 13, picking up in verse 22. Here's what happened next. He, that is Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Just pause for a minute. Luke is reminding us of the context of where we're at in this study, and if you've been around, you know what's happening in Luke is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has set his face to go there. Something is driving him. Something is compelling him. Something is controlling him. He's a man on a mission. But the amazing thing is that even though he has a mission, people are not an obstacle. People are not an interference. People are not an annoying distraction All along the way, Luke tells us Jesus is stopping. In this, we just see he's teaching constantly. He's interacting with people because Jesus knows, I'm going to Jerusalem, but what is the purpose of my mission? The purpose of my mission is people. People. And he gets interrupted in this moment. Someone in the crowd said to him, Lord, verse 23, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, I'm, I'm going to pause one more time. I promise I'll keep reading, okay? But just, I want you to, I want you to pay attention to something. This question, it, it seems to come out of nowhere. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Luke doesn't tell us why this question is asked. We have no context. All we know is this is the question that is asked, and this, this question sets now the theme, the headline for everything that Jesus is about to say next. So now, from this point on, the theme is salvation. But what's interesting is Jesus doesn't answer the question. Did you notice that? Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus says, I don't even care about that. Do you know, the only thing I care about is, have you been saved? Isn't that interesting? He says, no, 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 I'm not, I don't care about philosophical, hypothetical, intellectually stimulating conversations about the number of people who will get saved. The only thing I care about is, have you striven to enter the narrow door? Isn't that great? This person said, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus says, the only thing that really matters is, Will those be saved be you? He goes on, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter the, and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets 
in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be last. Wow, what a passage. I can summarize that paragraph with one word. It's an emotion word. It's a word that characterizes the life of Christ. And it's a word that I'm going to commend this morning to River West Church. And so I want you to write this word down. It's the word urgency. Urgency. Jesus lived with this notable urgency with people. He was passionate about people. You see it on every page of the Gospel of Luke. Every interaction, you see this passion and this urgency. And it was a passion for people's souls because Jesus knows, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Why am I going there? I'm going there to die for human sin. The whole purpose is for the souls of people. And so Jesus, in every interaction, he walked into that interaction with this astounding sense of urgency. And the metaphor, the word picture that captures the reason for that urgency is this metaphor. Did you see it in verse 24? Of the narrow door. It's very vivid. I want you to try to picture it with me. A narrow door. What does it mean? We, okay, we know, of course, that that, that metaphor, that, that narrow door is the, is the entryway into the kingdom of God. It's, that narrow door is, is the entrance into salvation. And what Jesus says is it's, it's, not a, it's not a wide open door. It's not a boundaryless door. It's not a door that you sort of stumble into by accident. No, the door is specific. It's it's lined out, it's, it's measured, it's narrow. It requires some intentionality to it. It's a narrow door. And now you can understand why Jesus, when he talks about that and when he's interacting with people, he brings into those interactions this, this sense of urgency. And folks, let me, let me just tell you right now what I'm gonna do today throughout the whole sermon today I'm going, to, I'm going to drop into Christ and his heart and his emotional intelligence and what he's doing, and then I'm going to constantly pull back out and I'm going to ask you to think about your life. And think about, right now, think about your sphere. Where are you? Your relationships, your marriage, your, where you work, the people you interact with. Because the purpose of studying the gospel of Luke is not just to learn the gospel ourselves. The purpose is to learn how to live like Jesus Christ. And what I'm telling you here is, Jesus lived every moment with a sense of urgency. Amazing. And it makes sense. I'll speak personally. If I lived my life in my relationships, in my neighborhood, in my world, if I, if I lived in that realm without a sense of urgency, I might be displaying the fact that I don't really understand the implications of the gospel that I not really thought about it. 
You see, it makes sense. It makes sense in this time that we have on earth that we would be intentional, that we would care, that every interaction we would bring to it a little bit of urgency. Now you say, yeah, but I don't want to be that kind of Christian. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? Some of you go, I know there's those kinds of Christians that they're sort of the annoying Christians who are super intense and they're always in your face. I'm not suggesting that you be annoying, all right? Do not do that, okay? I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the person who's always intense, in your face, pressuring you. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm talking about the kind of Christian who really is convicted. This matters, and it matters for you, my friend. And you know what I've discovered in my life, friends? People out there in our world, they actually appreciate that. See, we think that will put a strain on our relationships, but most of the unbelievers that I know are actually thankful when we're direct and honest and we care about what we're talking about. Amen? Amen? Uh, last couple years ago, I finished a sermon, and this man came up. He was brand new to the church. It was his first Sunday, and he walked up, and he looked super intense. And he came up, and he got up really close. He broke the plane, the, the socially agreed upon plane of personal space, and he got right up in my grill, and he grabbed me by the arms, and he looked at me with a super intense face, and he said, I want you to know, Pastor, that I disagreed with almost everything you said today, <laughs> especially the parts about Jesus. And I thought, well, that's most, most of the sermon, okay? And then here's what he said next. He goes, thank you. I'll see you next Sunday. And I was like, that's the most confusing conversation that I've ever had. So I said, why are you coming back before you leave? And he goes, I'm coming back because I can tell you really believe this. Like you're, you're, you were so direct. You're not, and, and I see it in the whole church, your whole church. I can tell you, you guys are serious about Jesus. You know, not every seeker is sensitive. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> Sometimes they actually want to, they want to be able to tell, do you guys really care about this? Do you, do you live with a sense of urgency? Jesus did. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to point out a few things about Christ's urgent plea as it relates to this narrow door. Think about these with me for just a few moments. Jesus lived with a sense of urgency because he knew that the narrowness of the door would create a stumbling block for a lot of people. He knew that. He knew. Jesus knew. Jesus knew. If I, by describing the door as narrow, that's going to sound kind of narrow. <laughs> right? How can you claim that your religion is the one true religion? Have you ever heard that in our world? You ever heard that? All the time. How can you claim that? How can you claim that, that Christianity is the only way? How can you claim that you know that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life? That sounds so narrow. That sounds so arrogant. It's like one of the number one complaints we hear in our world. And I get it. I get it. And then it's what Timothy Keller calls the annoying exclusivity of Christianity. I like that. Okay. And it's, it sounds sort of arrogant. And then the opposite sounds very humble. So you'll hear people say, I mean, come on. We know that basically all the religions lead to God, right? You ever heard that? And that sounds very pluralistic and tolerant. It sounds very humble. But wait a minute. Can I ask you a question? Is that actually humble to make that statement? Now, look, we know that all the religions basically lead to God. Can I point something out? The person who says that 
is claiming that they have exhaustive knowledge of all the religions, which doesn't exactly make them the poster child of humility, okay? <laughs> They're saying, we know all the religions basically lead to God, okay? But here's the second thing. The person who makes that claim, a lot of people in the world disagree with that claim. There's a lot of people who say, well, the reason I am Jewish or Muslim or people hold their religions because they think it's true. So for that person to make that claim, a lot of people don't agree with that claim. And for that person to require them to adopt their view is kind of narrow. So it's not exactly as humble as it sounds. And here's the thing I want you to realize. My friends, God is unbelievably inclusive in the gospel. That door Okay, it's narrow, but wait a minute. The narrowness is not because God is narrow. The door is God's open invitation, and everyone is invited. God has opened a door. The fact that God has opened a door tells us that he's inclusive. He wants people to enter into a relationship with him. But the door is narrow because God opened a door through a very specific means through his precious, unique, one and only son who came to earth to take care of this immense problem of sin. Jesus died on a cross and was raised again on the third day. And God says, that is the way in through Christ. Yes, it takes faith. Yes, you strive. Yes, you might have to leave some things behind, but the door is open, open. Amazing. My friends, Jesus lived with urgency because he believed this. He believed there's one way to, to know God. And I want to commend that to you in your life, in your relationships. That's number one. Here's a second observation. Jesus lived with a sense of urgency because he knew that eventually that door would close. And so he lived with urgency. And if you think about it, that's kind of the way doors work. <laughs> okay? Not to be obvious, Captain Obvious, but sometimes doors are open and sometimes doors get closed. And what we have here is we have this parable. You see it there in verse 25? This parable of the master of the house who at some point, you say, Pastor, when's this going to happen? I say, I don't know. It's up to the master of the house. But there's a day coming when the master of the house will stand up and he'll close the door. I know this. The Bible tells us that the reason there's such a delay to that moment, go to 2 Peter chapter 3, where it says, God's delay is not because he's negligent or forgetful. He's waiting because he wants as many people to walk through that door as possible. Amen? Amen? But wait a minute. A day will come when the master of the house will stand up and close the door. And when that happens, there will be people who will be on the inside. And the people on the inside will be on the inside. And the people who are on the outside will be on the outside. And Jesus says, now you know why I live with so much urgency. This is why. Okay, I'm, I want you to listen to me really close right now. I'm going to point out the, the immediate context of this parable. The immediate context is Jesus talking to national Israel. And we have to always start 
there. As a pastor, I want to be responsible with the text. And here's what's happening. Jesus is warning Israel. And the reason he's warning Israel is because God has been warning Israel again and again and again. That's the story of the Bible. God's sending prophets to warn Israel, stop disobeying me, become faithful, turn back. Jesus says, oh, Israel, I'm coming one last time. And this time, it's not just a, a, a servant that God has sent. God has sent his one and only son. And I'm telling you, do not miss this moment. Their day will come when God will close the door. Amazing. But then you realize, yes, that's, that's the immediate context. But then you realize as you read the rest of the New Testament that the New Testament tells us we're living in the age of the open door still, right? 2 Corinthians 6, Paul, Paul said to the church, he said, don't miss the grace of God. Folks, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Don't miss this opportunity. You never know when your life will come to an end or when Jesus will return. The door is open. Strive. Walk through it. Amazing. Last year, I heard a presentation from a missionary in, uh, to a Muslim country. The hill, he, he was ministering in a place in Pakistan up in the hills in an unnamed village. He'd been there for 10 years. And then he came home, and he came stateside, and he wrote a couple books on evangelism. He wrote a book called Evangelism as Exiles. I recommend this book. It's an excellent book on evangelism. His name is Elliot Clark. I heard him talk. And basically, he told a story. The story touched my heart. I've told this before, but it's so good and it's timely. So I want you to hear this again. He had come back to the United States, and then he and his wife wanted to go back to this village in Pakistan just to visit, reconnect with friends. And he had posted on Facebook his itinerary. And he got contacted by a young man from the village in Pakistan where he had lived for 10 years. And this young man said, hey, I heard you're going to be visiting. I'd love to just have coffee with you. And this, this missionary, Elliot, realized I had never talked to this man. I knew who he was, but we'd never actually sat down and talked. So he went back to this village, and he met this young man for coffee. The man's name was Hassan, and they were talking about life and philosophy and apologetics and worldview and... He, Elliot could tell this is a really sharp young guy. And so he finally, at a point in the conversation, he said, Hassan, here's, here's the question I have for you. What do, what do you think I believe as a Christian? Like, I want to hear you describe Christianity to me. And the young man described Christianity, and he got, a, he got some things right about God and the Trinity, but he got a lot of things wrong, like about grace, forgiveness, Right? So at, at, when it was all said and done, Elliot said, okay, let, let me cut in. Let me, let me share the gospel with you. And he presented the Christian gospel to this young man. And when he finished talking about Jesus and the cross and grace, the young man kicked back his chair and he stood up and he was extremely disturbed. And he said, do you mean to tell me that you lived in my village for 10 years and you never told me this? You never... How was I supposed to know this? How could I have learned this if you had not told me? How could I have processed? I had three people at the nine come up and say, I was that guy. I had a friend in college who never told me that he was a Christian. And later, 
I, I learned the gospel and, I, and I, I went back to him. I was like, why did you never share the gospel with me? <sighs> Amazing urgency. My friends, there's a day, that day is coming when the door will close. Jesus says, live with urgency. Think about your relationships, your work, your marriage, your home. Third observation. This will be quick. Jesus lived with a sense of urgency because he knows that that door is the entrance into the fulfillment of our deepest longings. Jesus knows this. Do we know this? I stumbled over verses 28 and 29 all week. Can you look at them with me real quick? They're so interesting. By the way, when you're reading your Bible and you stumble over something and you don't understand it, one approach is just to move on and read quickly ahead. Another approach is to go back and read it over and over and over and go, what's happening here? And that's what I did. Look at it, verse 28 and 29. What is Jesus doing here? In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see... Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. What's Jesus doing? The, the key is that little phrase, recline at kingdom. Do you see it there? You'll see people reclining. That is code in the Bible for the big banquet that's coming, the end times. The Bible uses the metaphor of a banquet. It will be the celebration. And the people of Israel were longing for it because it, there were promises of it all over their prophecies. Isaiah chapter 25 describes this banquet of rich food and perfectly, perfectly uh, aged wine where God wipes away tears. There's no more death. The people of Israel were longing for that eschatological end times banquet. And what Jesus does here, and it's brilliant, is he says, I'm going to tap into your deepest longings. Jesus says, imagine. He, he uses their power of imagination. And he says, imagine there you are. You've rejected me. You've rejected God the Messiah. And you find yourself to your horror standing on the outside looking through a window at the banquet and you are not there. And all of the saints, all of the patriarchs, Abraham's there, Isaac's there, Jacob's there. And you've missed it. And the fulfillment of all of your deepest longings, you know, you come to the, the sudden realization, that's where I most want to be. Amazing. It's like the ultimate version of FOMO, okay? Fear of missing out, right? And Jesus draws on it. So powerful. And so he's urgent, cares. How about you? Um, I'm so proud right now uh, of Pastor Eric and Pastor Christopher put together a curriculum for our small groups. Uh, all the community groups are going to go through this, and they'll be sharing this with the community groups today. It's called Sharing the Gospel Together. And what it is, it's a seven-week kind of experience where we learn how to do evangelism in community. And the basic idea of this, of this leader guide is that evangelism is a community 
project. We, we, we share Jesus as community because the community is often this beautiful display of all of the great themes of the gospel, grace and forgiveness and love. The Bible constantly says people see that in community. They, they'll see it in your church. They'll see it in your small group. It's the, it's, they'll see community and realize that's, that's the place where all of my deepest longings can be met, that place where Jesus is at the center. And Jesus says precisely, share that with people. And so here's what I need to do now. Before, In a moment, we're going to read the rest of the passage, but I, I have to stop and talk to each one of you and ask this very qu- simple question, okay? Have you entered through the narrow door? Have you strived to enter? You, it won't happen by accident. You won't stumble through there. There will be a moment. God knocking on your heart, and you'll know it. And right now, I know that moment is happening right now in this room. I know, I can tell. God's saying, I'm inviting you. The door is open. God, it's inclusive. All you do is put your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, don't miss the moment. Don't don't walk out of here if, if you've not done business with Jesus. Today is your day. Today is your day. Okay. Well, let's read the rest of the passage together. I left off at verse 30. Here's what happened next. Chapter 13, verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and they said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, you go and tell that fox. Now, let me stop real quick. Okay. (laughs) Uh, They used fox differently than the way we use fox. Okay. Jesus is not commenting on how attractive that Herod is. They used fox to describe someone who thinks they're big, but they're actually small. And Jesus is like, you tell that guy who thinks he's powerful, but he's actually a peon. All right, here's what I want you to tell him. He said, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and I perform, and I perform curses today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> On the third day, I finish. We'll come back and talk about that in a minute. Oh, I did? Oh, sorry. Thank you. What is it? Cures. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Like, it's the new Adam Standard Version Bible. Thank you. Talk back to me whenever you, whenever I say something wrong. Okay, here we go. Cures, thank you. That's so important. Boy, one little S and it changes the whole. <laughs> I'm so thankful for edit on our um, video. Okay, okay. Here I go. I cast out demons and I perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now look at this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's a a lament. Jesus probably had tears in his eyes at this moment. 
Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood? I'm going to talk about that metaphor in just a minute, but can you picture it? The, the, the hen who has spread out her wings and she's trying, to, she's trying to gather in her chicks to come in under her wings. Powerful. How I would have gathered you like a hen tries to gather her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord. Amazing. I can summarize this paragraph in one word. It's an emotion word. It's a word that characterizes the entire life and ministry of Jesus. And it's a word that I'm going to commend to Riverwest Church today. And I want you to write it down. It's the word... Grief. Grief. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. In the Hebrew, anytime you would repeat something, you were, it was in grief. When David found out that his son Absalom had died, he said, oh, my son Absalom. My son Absalom. And he had tears in his eyes. Oh, if only it was I who had died and not you. Here's Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die for sin. And what is the emotion that he's experiencing? Sorrow. He's got a broken heart. Amazing. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor. Are you telling me that Christians today should live in our world and carry around this form of grief? And my answer to you is, 100%. 100%. When I was early on in ministry, I lived in Eugene. Kathy and I went to Eugene, and Kathy became an art teacher at a high school there. And I started a Young Life ministry at this high school. There was no Young Life. We were right out of college. We were super young. Kathy was teaching. I was trying to start this, this ministry. And I had met a lot of kids in the community, and I would do this thing where um, I would drive, sometimes at night, I would drive around the, the community, all the streets around Churchill High School. And I would, and I'd figured out where certain kids lived. I'd dropped kids off from after club or whatever. And I would drive past houses. And every time I would drive past a house where I knew one of the high school students, I would just start praying. And I remember I would do this on a regular occasion. And by the way, the story I'm about to tell is not commending me. This was the spirit of God. But I I remember one night I was driving and as I was praying, I just started weeping. My heart was broken because I drove house after house after house of high school students who did not know Jesus. And I just wept. And that's the heart of Jesus. Grief. And the metaphor that captures it is the picture of a hen. Now, if a word paints a thousand, if a picture paints a thousand words, this is that picture. If you've been raised on a farm, you know, why does a hen try to gather her chicks? There's danger coming. 
You see a hen and she's gathering. And even if some of the chicks are, are trying to, and they're, they're going their own way, there she is desperately gathering them. They have found, farmers have told stories of a, a fire burning through a barnyard and all the animals try to escape and, and some can't make it. And they'll come across the burnt, scorched, dead carcass of a mother hen. And when they peel her off, there are all these baby chicks alive underneath her wings. Amazing. And Jesus says, now you understand my heart, my mission. Can you just go there with Jesus? And he's, he's desperately gathering people. Why? That's his heart. It's a heart of grief. This is the most important description of the purpose of the death of Jesus in the whole gospel of Luke. A hen who has come to protect a hen who is prepared to die. Amazing. And Jesus says, this is why I've come. This is why today and tomorrow I'll perform cures. Thank you. Cures and miracles. And, but on the third day, I will finish my course. Amazing. And then Jesus says, can I commend this to you? Urgency, grief. In your relationships. River West, can I tell you something? I believe in the sovereignty of God. And because I believe in the sovereignty of God, do you know what that means? I believe that you are not where you are in your little pocket of the world on accident. God placed you there in His sovereignty. He puts you there for a reason, to build relationships with a sense of urgency, with a sense of heartache, with a sense of joy, with a sense of sincerity. And I want to commend that to you this morning. And what we're going to do today is we're going to come to the table. And, you know, it's, it's so beautiful. Think about it. The table is, it's a meal. It's a meal where we celebrate Christ and his death and resurrection, but that meal is a little foretaste of the banquet that we're longing for. We're waiting for that day when Jesus returns and we feast in the kingdom of God with Christ. And what I want you to do this morning as you come to the table, a couple things. Realize this is the fulfillment of my deepest desires. Amazing. God has met me. And as you go there, pray, Lord, would you, would you increase my urgency? Would you increase my sense of grief, my courage? Be with me, Lord, and we'll eat and drink together. I'm going to pray for you, and the worship team's going to come. Will you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are for Jesus. For the truth about Jesus, for what we're learning in Luke, but even today, realizing we get to see the master at work perfect emotion, perfect relationships. Lord, may we become more and more like Christ, we pray. Thank you, Father. And I want to pray now, Lord, for those who are here, who have come in, and they sense you inviting them through that narrow door. Oh, how I pray for you if that's you and, you, and God is tapping on the door of your heart. This is such a beautiful moment. All you do today is as we sing and pray, you just cry out to God and say thank you for Jesus.
Thank you. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for the forgiveness that is mine in Christ. Thank God. Praise God. Because you are becoming a Christian. And Lord, we thank you for that. We love you, Father. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.